It's time for the 7th Avenue Project. More information at 7thAvenueProject.com. Hello and welcome to the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. Today on the show... I come down on the side of doubt. I come down on the side of nuance. I come down on the side of wrongness. I champion all of these things. The writer Catherine Schultz has spent the last six years studying the nature of human fallibility. It's a pursuit she calls wrongology. She's interested in how we make mistakes, yes, but even more to the point, what we do when we make them, how we feel about being wrong, and how we come to terms with it, or don't. Her new book is called Being Wrong, Adventures in the Margin of Error. And though there have been a lot of books and articles in recent years about our mental mistakes, our goofs and miscalculations, this one's different. It's not a study in pop psych or management theory, attempting to diagnose and find a fix for our failures. Schultz has a more philosophical goal in mind. She wants to make the case that errors are an essential part of being human, and not only inevitable, but maybe even beneficial. We're here, we're wrong, get used to it. A conversation with Catherine Schultz, coming up in the next hour. When you undertook this book and this deep inquiry into what you call wrongology, <laughs> did you know that you were going to be getting into everything that makes us human, the very source of most of our stories, if not all of them? Error is at the heart of narrative. It's at the heart of all our religions, or at least most of them, you know, from original sin to other mistakes we make before finally being redeemed. Did you realize you're taking on essentially everything? <laughs> I'm going to give you two answers to that question because it turns out the answer is yes and no. I did realize it in the following sense. Uh, exactly what was exciting to me about writing about wrongness is that I recognized right away the scope of the idea. I did know, yes, that I was setting myself up to somehow have to write about religion and science and politics and ethics and identity. And I mean, pretty, you and know, I, I knew and love, I knew right away, wow, you know, this topic is so central to so many domains of thought, to so many of our emotional reactions to the world, to so much about our relationships. That said, I absolutely had no idea what I was getting into in terms of how difficult it was going to be to do that work. I attempted it. Now, people who just see the cover might think they're getting into a kind of Malcolm Gladwell-esque kind of book, of which there are many instances these days, books about decision-making, how to improve our decision-making process. I've interviewed a number of people who've written such books, including Malcolm Gladwell on this show, um, James Surowiecki, Jonah Lehrer, the, the list goes on. And this is not that kind of book at all. It is not that kind of book. And I'll say that I, I actually appreciate you saying that and recognizing it, in part because, as you said, for many, many reasons, including to some extent the way it's being packaged, it is you know, easy to mistake as that kind of book. The first thing I should absolutely say is that I have a lot of respect for those books. They're obviously totally fascinating to people, uh, often myself included. They're uncovering interesting new ground. But I think this book is more meditation driven it's more inquiry driven in some sense i think the bottom line is that it's it's quite a literary book you know i'm oh, yeah its ancestors are really the old essayists montaigne and so on it seems to me i think that's i think that's completely right i mean i'm you know hopelessly smitten with william james and i think it's visible in the book i'm i'm interested in 
in the kind of essayistic mode, in the in the real original sense of that word, where where to essay was to try something and to use words and language to feel your way through an idea and, and see what you're able to uncover. And I think that's why I landed on the word meditative. There's something that's more exploratory about this book than it, it's sort of more about the process than the end result. Mm. And yet it does include some some current science, it includes some stories, and it includes some some research and so on. When did Western civilization begin to focus on errors as something that could be studied objectively? One of the things that I was very excited to do when I set about writing this book was look into what you might almost call the intellectual history of error, meaning the the history of how we, at least here in the West, have thought about the idea of being wrong. And you can certainly trace that, you know, all the way back to classical times. There's pretty much the moment philosophy came about as a field. It was very, very interested in wrongness, partly because in its original incarnation, philosophy was all about pursuit of the truth. And if you're interested in truth, you've got to be interested in error. There's obviously a, a couple of thinkers who were particularly insightful on the subject of error. And Descartes had this incredibly productive obsession with the possibility of being wrong. You know, famously, it occurred to him to wonder whether he was wrong about his own existence, which is something that really doesn't bother most of the rest of us. And so he engaged in this very sweeping uh, exploration of doubt in his life, and, and he ultimately came to conclude that he himself probably did exist. That's the famous, I think, therefore I am. But he really, in some ways, introduced to the West the possibility of doubting everything we can possibly doubt. Mm. Let's fast forward a bit to the 20th century. And now we're in an era when it seems as though people are completely fascinated by this subject. There are books that you and I you know, are aware of and many books we aren't aware of that are all about how stupid we are, how many mistakes we make, kinds of optical illusions and uh, cognitive illusions we fall for, memory lapses, the whole genre of neuropathology, you know, Oliver Sacks and many, many others who love to show us just how completely mistaken we can be. What do you think of that? What do you make of that as a historical phenomenon? It's pretty fascinating, isn't it? It I is, think, really. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And people love it. People love they it. They can't get enough of it. Yeah, and I, I think uh, I have I have several different kinds of feelings about it. First of all, I think all of us are really curious about how our minds work, and I love that curiosity. I think it's healthy and wonderful, and we should all go you know, pursue it as much as we can. I have a little bit of a bone to pick with some of this literature in that – so a lot of it, just for some context for your listeners – there were these two uh, academicians, uh, Amos Tversky and Daniel Kahneman, uh, Nobel Prize winners. They did very, very smart work on psychology and behavioral economics, and they were really the first to uncover in a systematic way these cognitive illusions that you're talking about. And and their work is great, and it's held up by and large quite well, with some exceptions. But then what happened is a lot of people, science writers and so on and so forth, came along and thought, wow, this stuff is kind of fun. And it got translated into the uh, sort of out of the academy and into the popular domain in a way that often sounded like, hey, look how stupid we are. Uh, look at all these predictable, ridiculous, horrible mistakes we may mm -hmm. make. And, mm -hmm. you know, aren't, aren't we dumb? And isn't that really funny? <laughs> And the problem with that is, is it's actually just not accurate. In every one of these cases, we fall for the so-called cognitive illusions, not because we're, we're being dumb, but because we're incredibly smart, because our brains are 
very, very sophisticated. They're able to handle huge amounts of information in a tiny amount of time. They're able to take small amounts of information and make very accurate guesses. And that keeps us alive and it keeps us as, as flexible and fluid and swift of thinkers as we are. And so the notion that we get these things wrong because we're kind of miswired or faulty in some ways is just absolutely a misinterpretation of these findings. <laughs> um, the more we learn, though, the, the more we learn how potentially untrustworthy our perceptions are, even our deepest convictions. And you've got some fantastic examples here. Anton's syndrome. Right. I love these examples. I mean, I'm certainly in the, in the category of people you just described who I'm only too happy to read about weird neurological quirks <laughs> because guess what? It, it turns out they're really fascinating. Mm -hmm. Anton's syndrome is an incredibly strained and relatively rare, although not as rare as you might think when you hear about it, phenomenon whereby a person who has been rendered blind, typically either by a stroke or by brain trauma, is completely unaware of the fact that he or she is blind. This to me is an unimaginably extreme example of wrongness and a really fascinating one because there are certain things in life that we literally cannot fathom being wrong about. You know, in the same way that unlike Descartes, I don't bother to wonder whether I really exist. I also don't bother to wonder whether I can really see. It just absolutely <laughs> defies my sense of, of logic and how the world works and how I work to imagine that my conviction that I see could be at odds with reality. And by the way, the, the syndrome also covers people who are paralyzed and don't realize they're paralyzed. Anton's syndrome belongs to an entire category of strange neurological phenomenon that are collectively known as anosognosia, which means uh, lack of knowledge of a disease. And that's exactly what it is. You have some kind of catastrophic health problem and you have no idea that you have it. And uh, along with unawareness of blindness, sort of one of the strangest and actually I think the most common of these is uh, lack of awareness of paralysis, which again just seems completely unimaginable that you could be paralyzed and think that you could move. And uh, these cases are rare, obviously, and most people will never experience them. But I think they're useful because they point to the fact that there's really almost nothing in life that under the right set of circumstances we can't be wrong about. Mm. And no matter how impossible it feels mm. to imagine being wrong, guess what? Sometimes we are. Mm. I want to elaborate a little bit on these, these cases we're talking about, anosognosia. Anosognosia. Anosognosia, mm -hmm. where people aren't aware of a disease, including being blind or being paralyzed. It's not simply that they say, I'm not blind or I'm not paralyzed. It's that when asked to describe a scene, for instance, in the case of the blind person, or to walk across the room in the case of the paralyzed person, they actually will create a story that they believe. They will describe the scene in front of them that's totally made up and completely believe it. Or the paralyzed person will say, yeah, I, I did get up and go to the bathroom just now. Didn't you see me? Right. This is one of the really astonishing findings with, with folks like these. And the phenomenon you're talking about is called confabulation. It essentially means uh, making things up, but without the intent to deceive anyone. There's In the same way that you're not aware that you're paralyzed, you're not aware that you're making up stories to cover your paralysis. And it speaks to a very interesting kind of species-wide phenomenon, which is that we really crave and need explanations. Mm. And your brain, if it's put in the very unusual situation of thinking it can move and yet being unable to move, 
is going to somehow concoct an explanation for that. And it's going to generate that explanation and it's going to believe it. Mm -hmm. And this would not be terribly important or relevant, at least to the, to the rest of us in our healthy everyday lives, except that it turns out we all confabulate. It's very, very easy to get sane, you know, physically healthy, mentally healthy people to uh, fabricate stories about the world. We see this in false memory studies in which people not only accept but elaborate on implanted memories. Memories that have been suggested to them by the researchers. Right, exactly. And in many cases, uh, you know, the, the subjects in those studies will not only accept that memory and remember it as their own, as if they had actually lived through it and experienced it, but will be able on further questioning to generate additional details about it that were not suggested by the researcher. They're essentially able to confabulate. And the younger you are, the more likely you are to be able to do this. Do you remember when we were in college together? <laughs> yeah, I know. Remember that girl <laughs> who lived in the room next door? <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, it says that in the absence of good information, or in the absence of information that fits our picture of the world, we'll just make shit up. <laughs> we are, in fact, very, very good at making things up. And uh, this is, you know, I should say this is a wonderful quality of human beings. And it's also a necessary one. We are presented with a, a messy, noisy, confusing environment all the time. And our minds rush out into it and they try to connect the dots in some way that makes sense of the largest number of dots as possible <laughs> and, you know, kind of writes, writes away the ones that we can't explain. And this is a wonderful ability. It keeps us alive. It helps us interpret one another. It helps us interpret the world. Not coincidentally, it's why we're able to write novels and, and screenplays. But it does behoove us to remember that the fact that we've generated an explanation and maybe even one that's convincing and maybe even one that's lovely does not mean that it is one that's true. Um, you know, a lot of the kinds of studies and books we're talking about, which point out our conceptual flaws or our, you know, all the pitfalls, do have at their core a kind of belief that we could be right and we should be right and here's how we can fix it. That there is a right that there is a true north in our, you know, in our world, and we can definitely point ourselves toward it and get there. Right. And one of the ways that I, that I feel like my project most differs from these books is that I didn't, it's true that in a part of the book, I look at why we get things wrong. Uh, and I do that in part to, to offer a different explanation than comes across in many of these books, because as I said, I don't think it's because we're stupid, quite the contrary. And it's partly, you know, for that reason that I look at the origins of our error. But I wasn't interested in writing a book about how to get things wrong less often, or even that's just kind of laying out the sources of our errors. I was interested in, above all, in how we think about being wrong and in how we feel about it. And that's a very different project than anything that tacitly or explicitly has as its goal eradicating error, mm. which A, I think is completely impossible, B, I think is quite often undesirable, uh, and, and C, I think is just a little bit of a wrong-headed attitude about how human beings work and what we should strive for. And we'll definitely talk a, a lot more about your viewpoint on that um, as we go along. But uh, this idea that we are really smart there's there's a competing idea that we're just guessing machines, and we do okay. We do enough to survive, but we're not particularly precise, or we have a high hit rate of truly accurate, you know, observations and conclusions. 
I don't think those things are antithetical. I think that we are really smart and we are guessing machines. Mm -hmm. In fact, precisely why we're so smart and why human intelligence is so hard to replicate in the mechanical or computer mm. world is that we're astoundingly good at guessing. You give me a tiny, tiny bit of information <laughs> and I can make a mm. really educated guess. Well, I, I guess I'd make a distinction. I guess I'd make a distinction between guessing right in practical circumstances, which means not mistaking uh, the bottle of cleaning fluid for a bottle of milk, you know, and killing myself. We do pretty good there. We survive. On the other hand, as far as us being the kind of wisdom agents that we like to imagine ourselves as, seeing deep into the nature of things, really coming up with a complete and precise picture of our world, that's where I think we may fall grievously short, and it doesn't really matter. Um, you know, I was reading this series in the New York Times about that wonderful condition we were just talking about, Anasognosia, by Errol Morris, the filmmaker. Mm -hmm. And he's talking to um, David Dunning, who's a professor of social psychology at Cornell, about uh, some studies that he's done on people's inability to see their own limitations, uh, the level of incompetence that makes them incapable of seeing their own incompetence, which he thinks is a pretty general thing. And uh, Dunning says... Um, people will often make the case, we can't be that stupid or we would have been evolutionarily wiped out as a species a long time ago. I don't agree. I find myself saying, well, no, gee, all you need to do is be far enough along to be able to get three square meals or to solve the calorie problem long enough so that you can reproduce. And then that's it. You don't need to have a lot of smarts. I think that's true. And I think that, uh, which isn't to say that I agree that we're stupid, but I think his point is well taken. And I would likewise say and have said to people that... You know, I don't buy the evolutionary argument that we were right a lot and we're mostly right because evolution dictates that we must be, that if we misinterpret our environment, we would die out. Well, no, <laughs> not really, right? There's lots of situations in which being wrong and the capacity to err or the capacity to mislead other people is just as, in, you know, kind of evolutionarily useful as, uh, as getting things right. So I certainly agree with him on that point. Whether or not I think that, uh, you know, I don't think we're a stupid species. I don't know what the metric would be, though, because it's, I mean, there's not really a sort of, you know, third dimension set of humans that we could compare ourselves to and say, I well, think, we're dumber I, or smarter. I think relative to our idea of ourselves, which is that we're perfectible truth-finding machines, and that, for instance, in another popular sort of account from some years back, we're only using 10% of our brains. And if we just did everything right, we'd be spectacularly accurate computers, you know, and very few things would ever go wrong. Yeah, that's exactly where I think we, we go a bit astray. Uh, I think that we're amazing creatures. I, you know, share our kind of general human tendency to pat ourselves on the shoulder and say, look what marvels we are. But I think that rightness and accuracy is the wrong metric of how marvelous we are. We aren't perfectible. We aren't able to eliminate inaccuracy and error, among many other things, from our lives. But to me, that's not an indictment of our overall worth. I think we're just using the wrong tools to measure our overall value. I think that our capacity to get things wrong, and this is one of my central arguments of the book, is one of our most wonderful and cherished attributes, and that without it, we would be deeply, deeply impoverished. So do I think we're amazing, astonishing, intelligent creatures? Yes. Do I think that we know that because we get things right, and that the more right we could be, the more amazing we would be? No, not at all. Mm. You, you uh, say... To be wrong is uniquely human. It's obviously not divine. If such exists, it would be perfect. And it doesn't happen with other animals. What do you mean by that? 
Well, I think that, you know, it's interesting. We have this, uh, we have this cliche to err as human, which I hate because I'm a writer and I professionally hate cliches. But in some sense, this entire book is an effort to investigate that cliche and understand what it really means. And I do think there's a, a kernel of real truth at the basis of it, which is that we get things wrong because we are human and because we are human, we are able to get things wrong. And we really are, as far as I know, and as far as anyone knows, the only entities that can do that, as you pointed out. Now explain that to me. What about those whales who beach themselves or um, birds that fly into a window thinking it's the sky? You know, I mean, animals are making mistakes all the time. Animals do make something that you could construe as a mistake all the time. But I think that unlike a bird and a whale, when we have a belief about the world and that belief collapses, a couple of things happen. First of all, we have an emotional response to it, which uh, this is somewhat more disputable. But as far as we know, you know, a lion who pounces too soon and doesn't get the gazelle or a whale who strays into the wrong body of water and winds up beached, you know, doesn't sit there and bemoan that fact or go home and, you know, tell its partner, oh my gosh, I did the stupidest thing today. They don't, they don't have a kind of emotional concept of wrongness the way that we do. And even more importantly, in this piece, I think is indisputable, they can't revise their understanding of the world based on their errors. For us, a mistake is fundamentally something that we learn from. It's something that shows us that our idea about the world was wrong. And that's a capacity that we have and that no other animals do. Hmm. I would disagree with that pretty strongly. I mean, animals revise their behavior all the time. They do learn. But I still think that the category of error and the way that... I mean, error, as I see it, is contingent on belief, right? Mm. I think of belief as kind of the atomic unit of wrongness. No matter what we're wrong about, whether it's like how to avoid the you know, Friday afternoon traffic to get out of town or whether or not there's a God, what's at the heart of it is a belief about the world. And belief is a when you really look into it, a very interesting, complex, sophisticated phenomenon. And it's one that is quite hard to attribute to animals. Knowledge, some baseline ideas, some behaviors, those things are very attrib attributable. But belief is a little bit of a different thing, mm. as so, is emotion. So what is belief? Uh, belief, as I use it in the book, is a, is a broad category. It's essentially... Uh, Every representation of the world that you have in your mind, whether you hold it consciously or not consciously. So I'm sitting here and my set of beliefs right now includes the fact that, you know, it's foggy outside, that there's a microphone just off to my right, that the chair that I'm sitting on is solid, that I exist, that you exist. I mean, I could go on and on and on. I, I have literally an infinite number of beliefs in my brain at any moment. Most of them I'm not conscious of. But if one of them turns out not to be true, you can believe I'll get conscious of it really quickly. Mm. So all of your perceptions, all of your cognitions are beliefs. Yes, absolutely. Mm. So um, for you being wrong, and, and, and this is a way in which animals aren't wrong, is when a result clashes with a belief. Is that what you mean? When a belief clashes with reality, sure. With reality. Mm -hmm. And I should say that's a little bit tricky and actually somewhat narrower than the way that I talk about it in the book because... In many, many cases, I can experience wrongness myself or attribute wrongness to other people without uh, there being that kind of external barometer of reality to compare it against. So if I used to be, uh, you know, strongly pro-life and then at some point in my 20s uh, came to believe that this was, was is not a position I could sustain or support or believe in anymore. I myself have had an experience of being wrong, of rejecting a belief I used to hold. But there's no, you know, 
objective yardstick out there that can say, mm. oh, yes, now you're in line with the reality. It's just that I experienced a process of being wrong. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, you have looked into stories of people who've really revised their beliefs in big ways and maybe gone 180 degrees. You have a story of a um, ex-Klansman who was a true racist, a hardcore racist, who in a very short period of time decided that he was completely wrong. Yeah, this is a really stunning and in many ways a very beautiful and moving story about wrongness. Uh, the Klansman in question is a man named C.P. Ellis who died some years back. But C.P. Ellis grew up uh, kind of on the wrong side of the tracks in Durham, North Carolina, uh, grew up in pretty abject poverty. And uh, in, a, in a Klan family, his father had been a member of the KKK as well. And he joined himself when he was relatively young and moved his way up through the ranks. And it, it made sense of life for him. It gave him a society. It gave him a leadership role. It gave him a community. And then through a series of, of complicated circumstances, he wound up, of all things, participating in the essentially federally mandated effort to desegregate the Durham schools. It's not really something you would imagine a KKK guy would get involved in. But he saw himself as, and had been sort of cast as, the voice of Durham's poor white people. So he felt obliged to participate on their behalf. And really stunningly, through this process of participating in the school desegregation effort, and specifically of meeting an African-American activist named Ann Atwater, he just completely rejected his racist past. And as you mentioned, what's so stunning about this story is how swiftly it happened. I mean, literally in the matter of a handful of weeks, uh, Ellis had this realization that, you know, black people were not the problem. They weren't the problem in Durham. They weren't the problem in America in general. And that this belief system that he'd hewed to for his entire life was just completely false. Is there a lesson in that for, for people confronting similar situations? I think there are many lessons. I think possibly the most important one is that it's really unimaginably valuable to talk to people who disagree with you. If you aren't in a situation where you're forced to actually deal with and work with and figure out a way to have a civil conversation with people who hold completely opposite beliefs than you do, you're frankly never going to get exposed to the counter evidence. And if there's something wrong with your beliefs, you'll never know about it. So in part, this is a story about the value of spending time with people who you normally would isolate yourself from. Shill, you and I have a disagreement? Let's. By okay. All Rhubarb pie. Oh, rhubarb pie. I like rhubarb pie. Someone was going to bring it up <laughs> sooner or later. <laughs> and I didn't like the corrections at all. <laughs> oh, really? Well, okay, we have many things to disagree about. There might be a more substantive conversation to have about the corrections than about rhubarb pie, you know. I don't know what to tell you. I don't like rhubarb pie. <laughs> but I catch a lot of flack for it. <laughs> um, actually, I'm not sure I like it either, and I'm not saying I disliked the corrections, but I just thought I'd see if I could provoke you. But you, you say in your book that that nearly... Um, sundered a relationship, <laughs> that, that pair of disagreements? <laughs> well, I, I was speaking slightly in jest, but it's true that, uh, you know, aesthetic disagreements are so fascinating, right? So now, you know, I've, I've come out as a, as a rhubarb pie hater and, uh, and uh, someone who quite loved Jonathan Franzen's novel, The Corrections. And there are many people who disagree with me on both fronts. And I find these kinds of situations fascinating because obviously... Any remotely sophisticated adult thinker, and by sophisticated, I just mean basically mentally sound. You don't need a very high level of you know, uh, uh, sanity in your favor here. We all know that 
nobody's right or wrong about matters of taste. That's exactly what makes them matters of taste. And yet when we start talking about them, we can very quickly begin to act as if actually our own view is the right one. I mean, there are people who look at me and say, well, obviously you've just never had my rhubarb pie. It's like I just haven't been exposed to reality, and if I were, I would come around. And what's and of course it's quite comic when it happens in the context of taste and aesthetic beliefs, but it really is, you know, uh, quite indicative of how we deal with the rest of our beliefs too, which is like, well, obviously you just haven't mm. seen my reality, and mm. when you do, you'll come around. Mm. Well, in the case of the the Klansman we just talked about, obviously his change of um, of heart is huge. It's a it's an extremely significant belief that he had staked his previous life on. You know, a a, a belief in, in in sort of racial hatred and he had to change it right away. But then there's a whole category of and I'll use your word for them, beliefs that we have, you know, that are so trivial that to change them shouldn't make the slightest difference and yet we're stuck on them. Right, often At we are. At least publicly we're stuck on them. We'd yeah. rather not have someone else disabuse us of our notions. It's, I think that's a great point, actually. You know, there's several ways we can realize that we've been wrong. And one is that we can figure it out for ourselves. Mm -hmm. And another then we is that, come off looking good to ourselves. And then, right, then I, I think that's a lot easier to... Because we can still pat ourselves on the back. Oh, look, I figured it out. I'm mm -hmm. so smart. And uh, sometimes the world just does us the favor of showing us that we were wrong. Again, if I go out with my, without my umbrella and it rains, well, thank you, world. I was wrong. It's pretty indisputable. But of course, the third way we can, you know, have it brought to our attention that we were wrong is that you can tell me that I was wrong. And that tends to not go as well. Yeah. We do not, generally speaking, do well uh, with the experience of being corrected. And I think it's a real shame, actually. And it's something I thought about a lot in the course of writing the book, because it's a tiny but classic instance where our default attitude toward being wrong, which is that we hate it and we don't want to be associated with it, produces a very real but also very avoidable friction with another human being. Yeah. Why, though? I think because we buy into this notion that getting something wrong means there's something wrong with us. Mm. It is this kind of, we were, when we were speaking earlier about all this pop literature around wrongness, the notion that we err because we're dumb, because we're lazy, because we didn't think it through hard enough, because, you know, our judgment is poor... That's generally not the case. Those are not the classic set of reasons for which we get things wrong. But I think we think we do. And so we don't want to be associated with an experience that, you know, suggests that we're somehow lesser. And so instead of just being able to step back and say, eh, you know, I blew it this time, our instinct is to step forward and really scrabble for mm. that patch of rightness, even if we've, you know, clearly not merited it in that mm. moment. In addition to, you know, feeling demoted, we, we at least are afraid of losing a certain amount of authority or trust next time around. Well, he was wrong. She was wrong last time. He, she will be wrong again. I think that's true. And I think uh, it, it's an interesting situation because on the one hand, we do want people to be credible and we do want them to be accurate when it matters. And we obviously distribute our trust in people according to how much we believe in you know, their take on the world. 
And that's important. And I think there's real reasons that especially leaders and people in positions of power should worry about their accuracy. It's part of why I think it's absolutely incumbent on journalists to commit themselves to accuracy and to work as hard as they can, knowing that sometimes it will fail, but to work as hard as they can to getting the facts right. So I certainly don't think anybody is off the hook for doing that. That said, you know, we've all seen people who are absolutely unable to acknowledge their mistakes and we've all seen people who stand up and acknowledge them. And it's my experience that pretty much across the board, the person who can't acknowledge it comes off looking pretty bad and pretty ugly, and most people respond that way. And the person who is able to stand up and say I was wrong quite often looks both very graceful and very confident and, and powerful and like exactly the kind of person you would reinvest your trust in. It almost makes sense in some circumstances um... – politics being the exception, to go out of your way to say you were wrong, even if you were right. I think sometimes that's true. And I hadn't really thought about it until I started working on the book. And a friend of mine actually disclosed to me that she she does, in fact, deliberately use that as a strategy sometimes, <laughs> that she's not invested in being right, which is somewhat miraculous because most of us are, and that she's totally willing to say, yeah, you know, I think you're right and I'm wrong on that one. Because she just, to her... It's irrelevant. It's her mm. self-worth is not invested in, in being right or being seen as right. And she did, in fact, learn very early on that people very much warm to her when she does that. Now, I don't actually think that we should get involved in deceit. I don't think we should <laughs> pretend to be wrong when we secretly know that we're right. That doesn't seem good for anyone. But I think that the capacity to say, I might be wrong when we're not sure, and to say, I was wrong when we were is something that we should cultivate for sure. And I do think that the dividends among others are that people will, in fact, you know, respond more warmly towards mm, us. Mm. Now, politics, I said, is an exception. And I'm thinking of the, those cases where we really do invest in a leader, a certain kind of hope that there'll be a, you know, daddy or mommy who doesn't make mistakes. And I'm thinking of that moment um, in a press conference when President Bush was asked, have you ever done anything wrong or what's the worst thing you ever did or whatever? And he hemmed and hawed and really came up with nothing. Now, he could be accused of being the self-certain, you know, unself-examining Bush that a lot of people made him out to be. Or you could be more sympathetic and say no politician has anything to gain from actually producing evidence of their error because they're just going to be pounced on if they do. If he had said, I really screwed the pooch on that one, <laughs> he wouldn't have gotten much much support for that. So I, I must admit that politics puts people in an incredible, incredibly ridiculous position of having to seem perfect, but at the same time uh, having to admit mistakes in a kind of ritualized way that is usually, you know, insincere. Yeah, I think that uh, politics of all the domains of life is the one with the least functional relationship to wrongness. <laughs> and uh, this is hardly a newsflash. And... <laughs> You know, the first thing I would say is that I think that we're all complicit in this. We do, in fact, put political leaders in a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. Because on the one hand, you know, I mean, you cite this George Bush press conference and it's rightly famous because, you know, the reality is you don't look very good if you stand up there and you cannot find a single mistake to report and reflect on. I mean, you know, the Pope gets to be called infallible, but pretty much all other leaders are, are human and acknowledged as such. On the other hand, we really do demand and expect of our political leaders a kind of assurance and confidence and visionariness 
that weirdly we see as is completely uh, to the exclusion of the possibility of making mistakes. Well, of course, in, in the kind of vicious electoral system we exist in, partisan system, anything that you cop to is ammunition for your opponent. You're, you're in a no-win position. The only time that politicians typically admit wrong is when they have no other choice and when they've come to that moment when the press conference is necessary where they come clean about something, usually at the end of their careers. <laughs> right. I was going to say, I mean, there's two occasions, really, and one is when there's absolutely no other choice. They've been completely cornered on it. And the other is when the stakes, at least the personal and professional stakes, have dissipated. You know, if you're Robert McNamara and it's 1990, oh, whatever yeah. it was when he published in retrospect. that That's, of course, many decades past the Vietnam War in McNamara's case. But I'm thinking of those cases where the politician has been caught with hands in the cookie jar or other body parts in other places and and has to give the press conference, you know, and, and, and that's usually the career ending press conference. Right. Although, you know, so those are those are peccadillos rather than errors for the most part. Right. Then, then we're talking about kind of moral wrongdoing as mm. opposed to a failed belief. And it's. It's, I actually think it's pretty interesting and potentially instructive to compare the two of them because, in theory, it should probably be the moral wrongdoing that we punish more harshly. It's avoidable, <laughs> and error is not, and it's and and you know errors are not committed out of malign intent. As soon as they are committed for that reason, they're no longer a mistake. There's something else entirely. What's interesting is I actually feel that our political culture is moving more and more towards acceptance of. Uh, kind of moral failings. We mm. excoriate people in the moment, but, you know, America is the great nation of the second act. I mean, you know, Bill Clinton has got a thriving career. I would not be surprised if Elliot Spitzer makes a respectable comeback. We allow for those kinds of failings in a public humiliation process, and then we allow people to uh, sort of rehabilitate their reputation. But for heaven's sakes, if we're going to give people a second chance when they've committed actual moral failings, surely we should be able to do so when they just make mistakes. You mean mistakes of, of fact or of judgment? Sure. You know, yeah. mistaken beliefs. I see. I see. So when a president or another official has staked a, a policy on some particular claim that turns out to be untrue. <laughs> right. I mean, that's the kind of situation we, we far less often see someone say, you know, I was wrong in that situation mm. than, than, the, than the kind of moral mm -hmm, I was wrong mm -hmm. of, well, you know, I shouldn't have been caught with my pants down or yeah. what have you. And, you know, we saw an exception to this very recently in that President Obama in the aftermath of the, of the you know, oil explosion in the Gulf actually stood up and said, I was wrong. And those are incredibly unusual words to mm. hear from a president, especially with the first person pronoun actually present mm. in the sentiment. Mm. But by and large, uh, you know, we, we don't hear politicians talk about why they get things wrong and what led to, uh, you know, an erroneous conclusion. And hence, we don't, uh, we don't really examine those processes and arrive at better ones. We have a, a kind of culture of fault finding when it comes to people in the public eye. We have an entire mediascape. I don't mean all reporters and I don't mean all uh, news organizations, but I certainly mean a lot of talk shows, a lot of radio shows, etc., that are simply there to snipe at the, the latest you know, faux pas or screw up or to find them even when they're not there. Sure. I mean, that's, that's precisely what we do have is we have a very 
partisan, very ideological driven tradition of destroying the opposition on whatever scrap of evidence we can either find or invent. Mm -hmm. But that's the farthest thing in the world from an honest inquiry into what went wrong. In fact, when you look at what characterizes effective inquiries into error, it's exactly the opposite of all of that. It's an open, transparent, nonpartisan process. Often without penalties. I mean, with a certain amount of amnesty uh, guaranteed to the people who made the mistakes so that they'll admit them. Right. Absolutely. In fact, another crucial element of any culture that uh, that wants to try to prevent errors from recurring is uh, that mistakes are not um, blameworthy. In fact, as I was suggesting a moment ago, the moment there's any kind of real culpability involved, you know, if you were drunk, if you were using a controlled substance, if you were deliberately trying to perpetrate harm, well, then it's not a mistake anymore. The idea is that if it is a mistake, then you you aren't to blame. And as a result, that there shouldn't be punitive measures in response to errors. As soon as you impose a punishment for making a mistake, all you do is you drive it underground. Mm. You discourage people from reporting them. As soon as you discourage people from reporting them, you don't really know what's going on and you can't proactively prevent them from happening in the future. Where do you find processes that are good ones? Best examples probably come from aviation, which has come a really long way in how it thinks about error and these days is pretty much setting the standard. Uh, it's it's shocking how few mistakes occur in the aviation industry these days. You mean and fatal mistakes? Really, any mistakes. I mean, any mistake. and, and part of that is you, because you're not talking about on time flights, certainly. And back, uh, that's, lost baggage. That's a different matter, <laughs> right? Uh, I mean, yeah, and and those are sort of in the kind of ancillary support systems that that run our airline industry. But in terms of actual aviation safety. Uh, the, the industry has really committed itself to a systemic approach to limiting error. And that involves several components. One is that uh, fundamentally, they're, they're not actually that concerned about error. They're concerned about harm, right? They're concerned about danger. And so that shifts the focus in a really useful way because instead of saying, well, let's try to eliminate mistakes, which is probably unrealistic, they say, let's try to eliminate any potential harm from mistakes, which means what do we do? We build redundant systems. We make sure that uh, whatever mistake that could possibly happen along a chain of events is going to get caught somewhere and noticed and corrected for before it becomes catastrophic. Uh, they do foster a culture where Reporting error is is not only completely encouraged, but in many cases even mandated. Uh, you are not punished for doing so. If anything, you're going to be lauded. So there's really been a top-to-bottom systemic, sustained effort to cultivate a culture in which it's totally acceptable to talk about mistakes and thereby totally possible to really correct for or eliminate a huge number of them. Mm. Uh, resulting in some huge improvements in airline safety records over the last 20 so years. Huge years. Huge On the other hand, in medicine, you cite a statistic that's pretty amazing. I'm, I'm sure many people have heard it, but it never ceases to amaze me. The eighth leading cause of death in the United States is medical errors, preventable medical errors. That's correct, or at least it was correct at you know whatever date I was writing that sentence of the book. It's it's medical error is very sobering. I was actually just before our conversation started, I was interviewing a, an expert in medical error, and he said completely in passing during the conversation that seven to ten percent. I believe I'm going to get this right. Seven to ten percent of uh, all 
drugs given in hospitals are given in error. The drug that's supposed to go to the patient in bed A is given to the one in bed B or the wrong drug. And I stopped when I said, well, that's exactly what I said. (laughs) Seven to 10%. Are you kidding me? No, no, that's the number. I mean, in certain places where they have a very efficient electronic monitoring system, it drops way, way down. Uh, But that's the average across the board statistic. And of course, it's horrifying. And, you know, medicine is a complicated field in this respect because, uh, Historically, they've done a very, very bad job of managing error. They've had a real culture of denial, a real culture of silence. It's incredibly hierarchical. Exactly. There's this very old-fashioned idea that, I mean, around doctors and uh, and other medical professionals, there is this aura of authority and, I don't want to say infallibility, but you don't ask them too many questions. You don't challenge them. Right. And there's there's a long history of paternalism and so forth. And of course, it, it's hard yeah. to challenge them in part because uh, medicine is a really complicated yeah. field and your average patient doesn't know that much about mm-hmm. it. And unfortunately, many doctors are constrained either by time, by health insurance concerns or by personality to and, and don't choose to get involved in the kind of explanations that would really empower patients to understand what's going on. But so, you know, on the one hand, um, there's a lot of pretty bad history working against the field of medicine. On the other hand, you know, to its credit, the healthcare industry has come a long way on error and is making some strides and is importing some of the good ideas from fields that have done better, like aviation, and is gradually starting to recognize, uh, again, that the only effective approach is systems that protect against the inevitable mistakes that people mm. are going to make. Uh, you know, I sound a little hard on the on the medical world there for a moment, but I'll, I'll make a, a kind of extenuating claim for them, which is that in the aviation industry, in order to maintain safety, you can delay a flight. In fact, some of those delays are due to safety precautions, mm-hmm. right? The, the flight was delayed because they had to inspect the plane a little more. On the other hand, the medical professionals face this dilemma, delaying treatment in order to be really careful may kill the patient or delay someone else's treatment and so on down the line. It's a great point, and it's one that's generalizable. It's not just specific to medicine. Anytime we're trying to get something right, we face a real trade-off, which is, well, how much are we willing to invest in the effort for accuracy, and what's the trade-off for doing so? And it's always a trade-off of either time or money or some other resource. I mean, you can error-proof a system, but what if it costs you an extra $5 million? Mm. Is it, to ward off a very, very unlikely occurrence, is mm-hmm. it worth it? Is it not worth it? So there's a lot of risk management involved. And for sure in medicine, you know, when an emergency comes flying through the doors, you don't have the luxury of time on your side. <laughs> that said, there are many, many ways that uh, error could be curtailed in medicine in, in systemic ways that, you know are not constrained by time. They're constrained by culture more than anything. You know, we were talking a moment ago about this difficulty people have in admitting they're wrong, and and the more important the issue, the less likely they are to bend on it. There are some exceptions. Again, C.P. Ellis, former Klansman, turned fairly progressive thinker on race, (laughs) being a great example. Um, You've been doing a series of interviews for uh, Slate magazine, uh, online magazine, with people in positions of influence and power about their experience of being wrong or their relationship to being wrong. Uh, there are quite a few interesting ones. And one is with uh, Diane Ravitch. Mm-hmm. She was um, undersecretary of education. Assistant secretary. Assistant mm-hmm. secretary under Bush 41, the elder Bush. And she helped spearhead a lot of the, the sort of school reform movement, school choice, 
Uh, was she in favor of school vouchers as well? She was. Mm-hmm. She was. Okay, so some of these moves at least would be seen by some people as undermining you know, public school system or taking some support away from the public school system. But she, she had a huge change of heart about all of this in recent years. She did, yes, and she was a really fascinating person to interview. Uh, in some ways, you know, I think her... Some of her core beliefs about education remained intact. She's always been something of an education traditionalist in the sense that she really believes in reading and writing and arithmetic, and but not just those, in a full curriculum. She's actually a strong champion of the arts. Many of these uh, values of hers didn't change. In her case, it wasn't that her core... Uh, educational values shifted, it was that she realized that the policies she'd been championing to implement those values actually completely undercut them. And so she did wind up having this, uh, you know, quite significant and substantive change of heart where she came to believe that no child left behind and charter schools and voucher systems were just absolutely destroying you know, what was once the great public education system Mm. of America. Mm. Mm. I think what was really impressive about this interview was this is a public official who had obviously banked a lot on these positions, very controversial or or divisive opinions, and who really, really has revised it. She has a new book out. I haven't read it, but uh, I I imagine it, it says I was wrong. You it know. does. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The book is The Death and Life of the Great American School System. And and she says about when you asked her about why, you know, how this came about, she said, in a way, I think that when we're really vehement about something or if we're really opposed to something, it's because there might be something there that attracts us or that we're, we think might be valid. Yeah, you know, these were the first words out of her mouth when I started interviewing her. I interviewed her in person in her home in Brooklyn, and it was really sort of how she launched into the conversation. And I have to say I was totally floored because although this is a a theory, both a kind of formalized psychological one that actually Jung, Carl Jung, uh, proposed and also kind of a lay theory that many of us espouse, like, oh, you know, it's, you know, he protests protest too much, too much mm-hmm. theory of, mm-hmm. of pop psychology. I had never heard anyone actually describe their own change of heart in a way that suggested that somehow they had been fighting against a subconscious attraction toward the other side. Yeah, yeah, especially someone in politics, mm-hmm. people who aren't given to deep self-questioning insights, at least in public, you know, in public conversation. (laughs) Right. I think it's a very rare thing. And part of what made that conversation such a pleasure is that she is a very reflective person who obviously had given a lot of thought to how she came to her beliefs and, and, you know, why she chose to hold them and and why at a certain point she chose to revise them. And it it is, you know, rare, not just in politicians, but I think in, in the world at large to be quite that thoughtful and introspective. Mm. You have a section in your book on uncertainty. I want to ask you about certainty. Um, you know, do you think that people who express a lot of certainty, people who are very self-certain, do you think they really are? Or do you think they're covering? I think that uh, people are a, an astonishingly varied <laughs> species. <laughs> and I suspect that, that you can find great examples of both cases. I think there are people who actually move through life with a sublime confidence in their own brains and their own actions. And that it's not the sort of insecure cover-up that we like to dismiss it to be. 
Uh, and, you know, I think that um, that kind of genuine confidence can serve people very well. It can give them the faith in themselves to do great things and, and to really, you know, kind of become someone in the world. So I certainly don't want to suggest that it's always an intrinsically a bad quality, although I think it can be a problematic one. And then I think that uh, there's probably many other people for whom the the projection of certainty is in fact a way to cover up a, a much deeper uncertainty. Have you interviewed anybody who had what you felt was truly an internal, unshakable sense of correctness, of uh, self-confidence? Well, I certainly know people like that. <laughs> Uh, you know, it's interesting. One of the people that I interviewed in this Slate series was Alan Dershowitz, the very famous uh, uh, criminal uh, defense lawyer and Harvard law professor and political pundit. And I found him to be a fascinating person to interview because on the one hand, he's actually someone who's clearly thought quite a lot about error and wrongness. And in a way that I found quite sincere, cares about it, believes that error is inevitable, believes that it's important to think about it and acknowledge it and talk about it, believes that it's a mechanism of learning, tries to model for his students the acceptability of saying, I was wrong or saying, I don't know. And then at the same time, in other domains, and particularly in his role as a political pundit, he seemed quite unable to reckon with the same set of issues, or at least unable to imagine that they might be relevant. He's famous for, for taking a very outspoken position, pro-Israel position with regard to the Israel-Palestine conflict. And frankly, many of the positions he espouses are, are relatively centrist, and many people agree with him. He's in favor of a two-state solution. He's against the settlements. A lot of this stuff is, you know, sentiments shared by many, many people who think calmly and reasonably about this conflict. But his presentation is so antagonistic and so self-certain and so, in many cases, so seemingly deliberately provocative. Well, for instance, in the interview... You talk to him about his use of the word evil to describe people who disagree with him, and he stands by that word. He does, although in fairness, he says that he doesn't use it to describe people who disagree with him categorically, and no. that, that, that he's many political opponents who he has respect for and, and appreciates the work that they do. And I believe I believe him. I think he said that in sincerity. He did, however, also say, yes, I like the word evil, which <laughs> you know, I thought was kind of a wonderful and wonderfully <laughs> frank sentiment. And, you know... There are certainly there are certainly a subcategory of people he disagrees with who he is very willing to tar with that brush and who he can't to whom he can't concede uh, any sort of moral universe that might be just as honorable and just and just as striving toward toward uh, truth and good outcomes as his own. Well, in answer to um, or as a kind of um, response to real certainty and branding one's opponents uh, as evil. You have a really nice epigraph from Philip Roth hmm. from American Pastoral, uh, his novel. I'm just going to read a little part of it. The fact remains that getting people right is not what living is all about anyway. It's getting them wrong that is living, getting them wrong and wrong and wrong, and then on careful reconsideration, getting them wrong again. That's how we know we're alive. We're wrong. I love this Philip Roth passage. I mean, you can imagine my delight when I, came, I was just innocently reading American Pastoral while starting to work on this book, and I came across this passage, and I thought, boy, you know, <laughs> I knew there was a reason I loved Roth, but this is bringing it to another level. 
it's beautiful. You know, I think it's a real, you know, funny and rueful and honest recognition that we strive over and over and over again to get people right, to get the world right, to get ourselves right. And there is honor and loveliness in that striving. But at the end of the day, we are very often getting it wrong anyway. You hold the what you call the optimistic view of wrongness. That's correct. I do. Uh, the um, this is the view of wrongness that uh, that I sought to champion in this book, and it's it's not my own. It's actually a part of our intellectual and cultural history as far back again, at least as the classical era. But it tends to get kind of drowned out by the more everyday view of wrongness, which is the one in which it's it's you know embarrassing and and, and humiliating and awful and a sign of our intellectual failings and our social failings and our moral failings and. Uh, I, I do. I reject all of that. I think that being wrong, while certainly sometimes costly and sometimes difficult, is uh, completely part and parcel of our intelligence and, and also many other traits we really value, our empathy, our curiosity, our imagination, many of the most wonderful things that makes us human. So how many years did you spend investigating, writing about, thinking about, immersing yourself in the world of wrongness? quite a lot of them. <laughs> uh, I started thinking about the subject in the fall of 2004, and here we are in the summer of 2010. So it's been, you know, I'm, I'm working on a PhD in wrongness here. <laughs> How has it changed your relationship to your own mistakes, your own choices? It's changed it quite a lot, which I think is the good news, because it suggests that uh, thinking about being wrong can actually change how we feel about being wrong and, and even how we act about it. There's some things that hasn't changed. I'm still a stubborn, opinionated person. I'm still only too happy to jump in there with a, a you know, fully formed conviction about the world, even though at heart it might be totally half-baked. <laughs> but what's really changed is that I'm, I'm very aware when I'm doing that, and I'm very capable of backing up and saying, you know what? I don't know what I'm talking about, or, <laughs> you know, I, I think I'm probably totally wrong here. And it has made it, uh, it's, it's given a certain levity to my actual mistakes, which like everybody I make all the time. And, you know, the great virtue of having this category of wrongness is I can just kind of look at them and go, oh, you know, there we go again. And, you know, and when it comes to larger errors, I think I, I have a little bit more of, of the long view from learning so much from other people and their mistakes that very often, even even the ones that genuinely are uncomfortable or hard or costly, bring us some unexpected good outcome in the end. Hmm. Well, I think you're right. <laughs> well, I, I guess it remains to be seen, but thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Catherine. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Catherine Schultz is author of Being Wrong, Adventures in the Margin of Error. This has been the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly, and I'll return next week. In the meantime, visit us on the web at 7thAvenueProject.com.